I'm Lara Land, somatic coach and yoga teacher trainer, and this is the Beyond Trauma podcast. What a couple of years we have had. The challenges continue to grow, and more and more of us are experiencing some level of traumatic stress. My commitment here is to bring you the most up-to-date insights on exactly how trauma affects our mind-body-spirit system and how we can work with our bodies to soften its impacts. You will be hearing from trauma survivors and researchers, and together, we are going to incorporate what they have to teach us to heal ourselves and promote the well-being of all those around us. Here we go. Hello, everyone. Real treat for you today. This week's guest, Zabi Yamasaki, is the founder of Transcending Sexual Trauma Through Yoga, which is an organization that offers trauma-informed yoga to survivors, consultation for universities and trauma agencies, and training for healing professionals. Zabi has trained thousands of yoga instructors and mental health professionals, and her trauma-informed yoga program and curriculum is now being implemented in over 30 college campuses and I know that is growing. She is a survivor, a mother, a partner, a daughter, sister, friend, and activist, and she has received countless awards in victim services and leadership, including the Visionary in Victim Services Award from one of the largest rape crisis centers in California and the Voice of Courage Award from Exhale to Inhale. She's the author of the book and affirmation deck published by Norton, Trauma-Informed Yoga for Survivors of Sexual Assault, Practices for Healing and Teaching with Compassion, and for coming children's book published by PESI, Your Joy is Beautiful, The Magic of Knowing You Are Enough Just As You Are. In this conversation, Zabi shares her powerful work and radiant energy. We discuss how trauma-informed yoga can help survivors of sexual trauma, the power of fully accepting non-judgmental relationships, and tips for yoga teachers, including trauma-informed cueing and the energy trauma-informed yoga teachers should bring into the classroom. There was so much commonality with Zahavia that we talked a long time and I still didn't get to all the questions I had for her. So I think I'm going to have to have her again one day soon. Enjoy this conversation. I know you will. So Zahabia, thank you again for joining me from the West Coast. You're in, you're in California, right? Yes, yes. I'm based in Los Angeles. It's so nice to be here with you, Laura. Thank you for having me. I hope your day has started out peacefully. It's a little earlier where you are. Yes, yes. The the mornings lately have been a bit of a, a tornado. Um, my son <laughs> just started transitional kindergarten. And so, you know, before we were, we would take our time and kind of linger getting out the door. And now there's like a very regimented schedule and they have to be there before the bell rings at eight. And so the mornings are just like, okay, let's get everybody dressed and fed and out the door. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, you know, that moment, like when my partner and my son, my husband typically does the drop-offs in the morning and it's like, you shut the door and you're like, Oh, I know that moment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It's a special time of year. 
Oh, Zavi, I, I'm so happy to have you on. I I came to know of you and your work. Actually, I see I've later found out we have a lot of people in common, but um, mainly through David Trelevin, who speaks of you and refers to you quite often. And I think had you on his podcast and he wrote the forward to your book as well, right? Yes, he did. David is my dearest friend and colleague. We've known each other for several years now, and there's just so much over overlap and connection with our work. So I love that there was the connection there that brought you to me. It's so wonderful to be connected. Me too. I felt like anyone that he was really uh, recommending and speaking so highly of must be just something. And then I got your book and and kind of dove into your work and I was like, yes, she is. <laughs> so I, I would I was wondering if um, you would share with me and, and with listeners just how you came to teach yoga to sexual assault survivors. That's kind of the bulk of your work or how I, I understand your work and what you do. Yes. Oh my goodness. Well, how much time do you have? <laughs> I, I will try to tell this in the most succinct way possible, but as a survivor myself, navigating the barriers and resources was just, I mean, I was very disembodied and dissociated and disconnected throughout that entire process. Because when you think about it, you experience this extreme violation to your body. And then it's sort of like, here's a hotline number to call and here's the phone number to the counseling center. Here's the support group. You know, it's no longer running, but maybe check back and see if they have availability later. You know, here are your options for reporting there. There's just so much coming at you. And when your nervous system is completely hijacked, it's really challenging to find out where to start, to find out even how to feel safe within your own body. And So it really started from a deeply personal place of wishing that I had the program that I, you know, Mm -hmm. have now created. And a lot of my professional work in graduate school, I went on to do my master's in higher education administration and student affairs and had always had this vision of coming back to a college campus and working with sexual violence prevention or working on campus policies, Title IX, all within that realm. And my first job out of grad school was actually back at my alma mater, which is UC Irvine. And I got a position as the violence prevention coordinator. And that took me to all parts of campus, really to talk about the impact of sexual assault, to talk about the resources that were available to survivors. And, you know, I don't always disclose that I'm a survivor when I'm out there on campus or in the community talking about my work, but it always sort of naturally comes up in a way that feels right and authentic. And so every time I would go out and do these presentations, there would always be survivors who would come up to me after the talk to share their stories with me, to disclose what they had been experiencing. And there was a lot of themes that I started to witness within those really sacred conversations with survivors around 
I feel the physiological impact of my trauma daily. I'm navigating chronic pain and insomnia, GI issues, and many of them just didn't feel quite ready to process their experiences through talk therapy or that for a variety of reasons and barriers to seeking mental health services, it just wasn't an accessible option to them. And so there started to be this sort of interconnection between that work that I was doing on sexual violence prevention and really being in community with survivors. And simultaneously, I was going through 200 hour yoga teacher training and you know, yoga had, has been an integral part of my life, but I didn't initially come to the practice thinking that it was going to be directly related to healing my, my experiences with sexual trauma. And then as I started to kind of put these pieces together of, wow, all of these survivors are sharing with me about the somatic impact of their trauma the daily triggers they're trying to navigate and need support with. And I'm also in yoga teacher training and having this really profound experience of experiencing embodiment and grace and self-compassion in new ways. And eventually, you know, those two worlds came together and I created an eight week trauma informed yoga series for survivors. And I remember one day I woke up at 3am in my pajamas and I just started to write. And I think that's similarly how the book process went with, with the, I know we're going to talk about the book a little bit later. I think there's something really magical when you have so much information that's been floating around within your body. And then sometimes you have these really magical moments where it just gets unlocked and it has to come out, Mm -hmm. you know, whether that's pen to paper, whether that's speaking, or there's so many creative ways for us to express what we hold in our bodies. And that curriculum came to be, you know, it's themes around assertiveness and boundaries and safety and, and just a lot of the topics and tools and practices that I really needed during that initial time post that experience of trauma, which I still come back to all of the time because we know that healing isn't linear. Mm-hmm. And it's now now this program has gone on to be implemented at at 40. We're up to 40 different college campuses. (laughs) 40 college campuses. I mean, so let's just talk for a minute about like what that looks like. So it's it's an eight-week program. Mm -hmm. What happens after the eight weeks? If someone wants to keep going, can they? Or um, they come once a week. What happens if they miss a week? Just a little bit about the structure. Oh yeah. I love talking about this. And what's nice about it, you know, we just did a big implementation at Yale and we've implemented across each of the UC campuses and Stanford and community colleges. And what's really beautiful about the diversity of campuses and trauma agencies that we're supporting is that everybody does it a little bit differently based on their resources, based on their needs, based on their student population, but more and more 
agencies and universities are recognizing that we can no longer leave the body out of the equation. We're losing too many survivors who aren't coming forward because services are not accessible to their needs. Mm. And we want to expand our modalities and services that we offer to be more holistic in nature. And so, you know, it's still, as long as I've been doing this work, it still never gets old when I will log on to a campus onto their website. It's typically, the program is typically run through the campus counseling center or through the sexual assault response center on their campus. And when I go on the website and look at their overview or or their list of services, and I see trauma informed yoga as a bullet point, it's, it just still never gets old. It, it gives me all of these warm feelings inside when I can look at that and say, wow, I mean, that's how we shift culture. Mm. That's how we get the world to recognize that we can no longer do things the way that we've always done them and that these services and resources are outdated and we need to meet survivors where they are. And so, yeah, in terms of the eight weeks, the survivor advocate on campus, or maybe the point of contact at the counseling center, who is typically someone who specializes in intimate partner violence or working with survivors, will do a really brief intake process. And they'll they'll really just connect with the survivor about what drew them to the program, what brings them joy, what does self-care mean to them, just really getting a sense of who they are outside of this trauma that they've experienced and really getting clear with them that the program is not clinical therapy. It is really a a trauma-informed yoga healing-based modality to complement maybe other modes of healing that they're working with. And they start on week one and the asanas and the themes really build upon each other in nature. So typically, you know, of course, some of the students have to miss classes, but, and we never make it so rigid that, oh, you have to come to every single class. But we do find that survivors who are able to come to as many classes as they can, they're offered once a week for eight weeks. Mm. Um, It's just such a profound experience of community and healing. And I'm always saying that, there, there's something so powerful when survivors can come together in community and not have to share one detail about their experiences of trauma that they can be together and breathe together and have this shared bond and experience that really transcends words and being able to have the honor of facilitating those spaces and being witnessed that the energy and the healing that happens within them is just, mm. oh, it's <laughs> you can't personally be able to be at all these 40 locations, right? Oh no, <laughs> definitely not. You must have, <laughs> do you have folks that you're training and placing or are you identifying trauma-informed uh, yoga teachers? Yes, both. I mean, it's, it's grown in so many ways. I used to laugh and my husband would just be like, what are you trying to do, babe? Because I would have my trunk full 
of yoga mats in my car. Mm. And I would just drive when I was first starting out, I would drive from like university to rape crisis center to, you know, all these places that wanted the program. And initially I was just teaching them myself. And then I thought, okay, this is not sustainable. I can't continue like this. I didn't know it was going to grow in this way. And so then I started leading three-day trauma-informed yoga teacher trainings that were certifying. Initially, it started out as just yoga teachers, but now we've opened it up to mental health professionals and other healing professionals who want to integrate the modality into their work. But when I initially started, it was yoga teachers. So I was training a lot of folks to teach from a trauma-informed lens. And then we had a core group that I trained in the eight-week curriculum. And it really started out of as typically college campuses and agencies that were California-based, but now it's grown all over the country. So now I'm training folks in, in other states and people will go through my training online and then offer you know the program at a local university. We just had a woman in Australia go through the training and is now you know integrating the concepts into a local university there. So it's just so much bigger than me now. <laughs> yeah, I think you... You really tuned into something with focusing on the universities and as, you know, as really that's the demographic that you wanted to touch. And I wonder if that was because of your own experience or if there are statistics you might share about the kind of violence that happens at the at universities. And there were some specific reasons that, that you went that route. Yeah. You know, because I went to grad school to get my master's in higher education, it was always my vision. You know, I always thought my dream job was going to be a director of a sexual assault response center and, you know, just one campus. And that's what I wanted to do. You know, that was kind of my, my mission going to grad school. And so, and yes, I think because my own personal experience with sexual assault is so deeply tied to my university experience. And, and I'm just so acutely aware that the way we're doing it can't continue. You know, I think about other friends who went through similar experiences to me at the time. And thank goodness that we had each other to create our own community of support, because at the end of the day, what it comes down to is that healing is so vast and when we think about our various intersecting identities, our needs, I know for me as a woman of color, growing up um, in a very religious Muslim family, Indian parents, I'm a daughter of immigrants. I didn't have a lot of options in terms of feeling like I could express openly what I went through. I felt a lot of shame around it. Mm. And I think when we're offered opportunities to really connect safely to our bodies, to really cultivate what that means on our own terms and in our own way. And even learning language around the nervous system. I had no idea when I was in college, I'm like, what is the nervous system? Mm. Like, I, I had never even heard that word before. And now I'm so tuned in to 
daily. Like, what does it mean to activate my parasympathetic, my parasympathetic nervous system? And why is that important? And it's just been very important for me. Even like you think about survivors who go through this experience at university and then the next day they're sitting in a lecture listening to something that's incredibly traumatizing. There's no trigger warnings. You know, I I think a lot of the reason we struggle as adults is because even as children and in college, we don't have a lot of models of rest Mm. just told to keep going and keep just keep powering through and figure it out. You know, there's not a lot of softness and grace and rest. And especially at university and that time in life, it can be, and I'm thinking, you know, you're away from home, you're away from your support system. Many times you might've worked really hard to get there, or a lot of people might have contributed to your being able to go there. So there's this pressure to make it work and to keep going. And all those factors can contribute, of course, to one's ability to seek support or take rest or share the experience at that time. Absolutely. As you said, it's so beautifully. I I think about how many students work so hard to get there and they just don't feel like they have any other options. And it was so beautiful when we started seeing survivors come through the trauma-informed yoga program at these various campuses because we were seeing students who would never have set foot into that sexual assault response center or made an appointment at the counseling center suddenly come through the trauma-informed yoga program because it felt like an accessible option for them. And, you know, I think about that the first time we implemented the program at UCLA, there were 40 survivors who submitted an interest form who wanted to participate in this program. And of those 40 of them, only 10 were currently connected to a survivor advocate or to counseling or had sought any type of support related to their trauma. So the other 30, this was their first entry point. Wow. And if we can reach students in this way that creates accessibility and even through the pandemic, I, it was so beautiful because even though we were on Zoom, we found that the retention was even higher on Zoom because people could be completely anonymous. You know, if they wanted to keep their cameras off, if they weren't ready to be in a community with others saying, I'm a survivor, that they could be completely off camera. They didn't have to participate if they didn't want to, but they could just take in the classes in their own way. And then I would get the most beautiful, you know, messages, private messages in the chat or emails later, just saying how beautiful it felt for them to receive and to not have to be on. Mm. So I just think it's pretty amazing how it's all unfolding and continuing to unfold. And 
I'm really inspired by what's happening in our field as well. I mean, Lara, you have your book about trauma sensitive yoga coming out. There's been so many amazing resources and diverse authors who have released books on this topic. And we're just seeing this really beautiful community that's unfolding Mm. and where we have resources now that we didn't have even just five years ago. That's true. I saw you dropped a long list. <laughs> I knew some of them, but not others recently. Um, and, and we'll link your Instagram, of course. I think you dropped a long list of great resources and um, gave a little love to some other authors in the space, which I thought was very generous and Aww. and wonderful. And I saved it. <laughs> I was like, oh, I have, a, I have my reading list for the year. <laughs> I know it's something that I love. I love reading. I love books. And I love that, you know, we can all write books on, on similar topics, but one healer is not going to be the healer for you. And that's okay. You know, that that's the beauty of folks writing about this work from a variety of different lenses. So you can find the language that feels soothing for your nervous system or find the lens that lands for you Mm. or makes it more accessible for you. I think that's really amazing. Yeah. And I, you know, most of, I run a nonprofit and we train teachers, yoga teachers in trauma sensitivity, and we partner with other nonprofits. So it could be, um, food bank or many times we're in domestic abuse shelters, we work with a, a lot of folks dealing with refugee issues. So kind of across five categories, but not not specifically with folks who have been through sexual assault. And actually one of the questions that I had for you, speaking of, you know, being in sort of similar overlapping spaces, but having different lenses is if there's anything specific to, as far as like nervous system reaction responses and maybe what you see in the yoga space that shows up in a a survivor of sexual trauma, you know, versus maybe another kind of traumatic event or events. Oh gosh, there's so much to say here. I would say, first of all, we know within our work that trauma is somatic. So people are oftentimes registering their trauma, not always as stories, but as felt sensations in their bodies. And as I was mentioning before, specifically with survivors of sexual assault, so many of them would share with me about experiencing flashbacks and nightmares, hypervigilance, anxious thoughts, migraines, stomach pains, Many survivors might engage in self-harm or develop eating disorders as a means of regaining control and power over their bodies. And something that is helpful that I speak about with survivors in the program is that so often these visceral feelings that we experience are oftentimes a result of our vagus nerve disengaging. And the vagus nerve plays a really instrumental role in terms of the expression of emotions in our body. I talk with them about how practicing trauma-informed yoga is just one modality of many that are available to them to help stimulate the vagus nerve and help them manage a variety of their physiological symptoms. 
And I think what happens with survivors too is, you know, we talk a lot about triggers and how healing is not linear and how so often you might hear a certain song or you smell a certain scent and all of a sudden you can be placed right back in that traumatic experience as if it's happening in that moment and your nervous system can feel hijacked. Mm -hmm. And so much of what we do, and I think it's really beautiful. I think that's, that's, what's beautiful about healing is that as messy and painful and hard as healing is, it, it can also really be beautiful and expansive and tangible. And sometimes it presents these really little beautiful glimmers of light in moments that we don't even expect. And the best way I can kind of describe this is, you know, one survivor I was working with, she would struggle because when she was on campus, she would oftentimes see the person who harmed her. And she was going through a process of trying to report what had happened, but she was experiencing a lot of barriers. And every time she would see this person who harmed her, it would send her, you know, into a spiral and she would feel dissociated and she would go back to her room. And it had, of course, a significant impact on her well-being, on her mental health, on her ability to go to class. And something that she started doing, you know, we would do a lot of various body-based practices and mantras and affirmations and not in a way at all to spiritually bypass the pain of the trauma. But sometimes she would, when it would happen, when she would see that person who had harmed her, she would take note of her feet on the ground of what would help support and nourish her nervous system in that moment. She might rest a palm on her heart and a palm on her belly and recite something that felt really powerful to her. And week after week, she really started standing in her power and her truth in that those practices were never going to erase or take away the pain that had been done to her, but she was starting to loosen the grip that it had on her heart. And I think that that's what's so beautiful about practicing in community and starting to embody some of the practices is that they help us heal in those moments when certain experiences might've completely hijacked us. Mm -hmm. So I know it's a very long description and there's so much more that I could say, but it's why I feel really passionate about talking about the neurobiology of trauma to yoga teachers who are interested in working with survivors or teaching from a trauma-informed lens because when they have an understanding of the impact of trauma on the brain, it helps them have a more holistic scope and view of the experience that survivors are navigating. And it helps them be more nuanced in their teaching mm -hmm. and it helps them be more sensitive in what they're offering and what could be potentially triggering. And, you know, at the end of the day, we're not going to be able to mitigate every single thing that could possibly trigger someone. But what we can do is hold the container with strength and safety and do our very best to really cultivate that 
nervous system trauma-informed space and, and really be gentle with those that we're holding space for and ourselves. Because when we're working so intimately with the body, we're definitely not having uniform experiences, right? So we have to really lean into the discomfort of that and I think, you know, practice that compassion with ourselves and each other. Yes, absolutely. And I want to ask you more about that and how you're incorporating that sensitivity into the yoga space. Before I do, I just wanted to because I have so many questions for you, Zavi. Um, Sorry, I talk so much. It's wonderful. Oh, it's beautiful. And please, oh my gosh, just talk and talk and talk. It makes my job easier. <laughs> the other way is very difficult, as, as I'm coming to know during this podcast. Um, so please don't don't censor. Just just talk because um, I think we love listening to you and they hear enough of me. But um, I, I wanted to ask about the point of accessibility because I do think that this goes back to a little bit in our conversation, but I think it's interesting and, and important because I love how you're speaking of in the context of surviving an assault on the campus that the offering of yoga, and you've proven it, is is with that, you know, 30 people attending and t- only 10 had had other sought out other resources. So people are are gravitating more toward the yoga, which is is somewhat interesting, right? Because in some ways, you know, a lot of conversations I'm in, we talk about yoga as sometimes feeling and having a kind of marketing that's that makes it feel a bit inaccessible. So it must be something around the communication of how you how it's being translated from the people that are sharing this offering, maybe you want to speak to that a little and, or maybe it's something where, you know, folks just really know intuitively that they need to get into their bodies, what's happening with their bodies. Maybe the words aren't there yet, or I know. And so I'm now speaking a lot, a lot of layers to this question. I know that after reporting a a sexual assault, there's a lot of questioning that happens and folks can be victimized again having to defend their story and there can be an internalization of self-blame and shame by the way the questions are asked. So maybe there's just a feeling that, you know, that folks don't want to talk at that time. Can you speak to any level of that question? Oh, yes. There's so much to say there. I would first say about, I'll start with kind of the way that the program is presented and the marketing piece and how that might land. One of the first things I do when I work with a new campus or trauma agency in my consulting work is I really help them have a very strong foundation before they launch or implement the program. And the reason that is so important is that sometimes people think, oh yeah, we just want to offer this trauma-informed yoga class. And I'm like, no, it's it's not a one-time offering. This is a treatment for trauma that is an evidence-based modality that you are offering through your agency or through your university or center. And given that it's that, it has to be treated with the utmost intentionality in its rollout. And I pause there because 
you know, I think initially many of the staff who are involved with the initial implementation think that things can happen a lot faster than they do. And I think that's an important lesson for all of us because we're all excited. And yes, we want this program up on your website and running, and we want survivors to be able to access it. But first we need to build the foundation. You know, what does your intake process look like? How many staff can be involved with the implementation because it cannot just fall on one person? What resources are available? How much time do we have? Do you want to offer a full eight-week series? Are there going to be multiple facilitators or, you know, can a therapist co-facilitate with the trauma-informed yoga teacher? There's just so many elements that we have to think through. And then once we implement and they have their first series, they always come back to me like, Zavi, thank you so much for helping us with our foundation and making sure we had everything that we need because all the different things that you mentioned did come up and (laughs) we're so glad that you prepared us. And I always want to be like, you know, I don't want to say, trust me, but I also want to be like, trust me, I've done this many times and I want to set you up for success. And so, you know, and that comes too with, we want to build out the web page. you know, survivors are oftentimes given the counseling center website or the care center website. And if they log on, if they're feeling unsafe or in a state of crisis or trying to look for resources, we want them to be able to log on. And if they are interested in the trauma-informed yoga program, that it feels soothing, that it feels safe, that it's accessible, that there's clear instructions. You know, we're talking about creating a trauma-informed program in all of its elements. So, you know, we want the access to be clear. And so, yes, I think that's part of it. We, we are very intentional with how we're thinking about survivors will be receiving the program when they're looking it up. And then you talked about the police department piece and Oftentimes I will actually do training. It's a mini training for the police, the campus police on the program. But I first start with talking about the nerve. I first actually start with leading them through a mini practice because they definitely don't get to experience embodiment and oftentimes look at me like, what is this woman trying to teach us right now, but I want them to have an understanding of how the program is landing in their bodies because for them to know as first responders that this program is available and that it complements the work that they do, right? If, if they're asking traumatizing questions or trying to get information from survivors and they don't have an understanding of the neurobiology of trauma, and why survivors might have a, it might be challenging for survivors to recount what happened to them in a linear way. Yeah. I oftentimes reference Rebecca Campbell's work of the messiest desk of, if you can imagine that there were post-it notes all in sequential order on your desk and someone came over and wiped those post-it notes away, crumpled some, moved some in another direction. That's oftentimes what's happening to the memories that survivors have associated with their trauma. 
they become incredibly fragmented. And so even just like 30 minutes or an hour with the police department to do a mini practice, to talk about the neurobiology of trauma, for them to know how to make resources or referrals to the program for any survivors that are coming to them, that relationship has been very important. That's fantastic. I've actually done a lot of work with police, with the NYPD, introducing many uh, police officers to yoga through our nonprofit. So I know a little bit about how that goes. Oh, I love that. Yeah. To hear about that. Yeah. I actually, I had that kind of thought in one of my questions to you about the kind of energy that we're going for in the yoga room. Let's talk a little bit about what the yoga class looks like. And I know we don't want to be prescriptive with our poses. I think I read in your book a question that you get, same one that I get every time I lead a training. You're like, what are the poses that will cure trauma, right? It's not It's not like that. Um, but maybe you can share a little bit about what kind of flow one can expect in one of your classes or if there are particular shapes that you gravitate towards or away from that you know, we know like different ways of holding our body tend to result in different energetic feelings. It's not always the same for everyone, especially when there's been trauma. But sometimes there are certain postures which help us to feel different ways. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, just as you said, a a shape or a posture for one person could be really nourishing and supportive for them. And for another person that could feel really activating and triggering. And the same goes for breath work or breath practices. So I would say, you know, typically in the trauma informed yoga classes that I teach for survivors, we start on the floor with some grounding postures. I like to integrate various mudras and short somatic practices that I introduce them to, whether it's, you know, the five-step hold, which is inspired by Peter Levine's work, or it might be a butterfly hug, or it might be Adi mudra to give them a sense of grounding, which is something that I typically gravitate towards when I am in a situation where I'm feeling a little activated. It's resting your thumb in your palms and then wrapping your fingers around your thumb. And Mm. you're always in control to the degree you'd like to squeeze your thumb, maybe resting your palms on tops of your thighs or grounding them down. So it's really introducing them to these various practices and then offering choice within those practices. And then we might, you know, move up to some sun salutations and always taught from a trauma-informed lens with that language and that warmth and compassion and, you know, inviting them to stand in their power or to honor their power and their strength and to take a look back and see how far they've come and take tiny steps forward towards their future, just integrating kind of language, you know, that's not just cue-based or even trauma-informed, but really spiritually connected to the various experiences that are happening in the room. We might move through some warrior twos and um, then make our way back down to the mat for some 
seated twist or, you know, it's really, what's nice about it too, is many of the survivors I've worked with have shared, you know, I love coming to class with you because I know what to expect. Yes. And that's really supportive for my nervous system because it feels predictable and, and that's comforting to me. So that kind of gives you a little sense of what it definitely changes based on who's in front of me, because obviously the students that are in class are going to be my greatest teacher and in, in responding to their needs. But I like to kind of integrate that little formula and then see where it takes me when I'm with those in the space. I love that. Like having kind of a skeletal structure and then allowing what's alive in the room to speak to you. And um, Mm, I also, yeah, I also get a similar report that, you know, just the same poses every week is great. (laughs) I know what's going to be asked of me. I don't have to be nervous about this new difficult or unusual pose that takes me out of just being, being present. So repetition is, is your friend. Mm, Yes. And I think that's so important for trauma-informed yoga teachers or those inspiring to be trauma-informed to remember too, because we all put so much pressure on ourselves to, oh, do I have to have this fancy flow and how am I going to remember all the things from my training? And what if I do something that's triggering? And, you know, it's just so much pressure, but when you can remember your intention and, and come into that teaching space, knowing that a lot of the tools you're learning are embodied and, and to not have so much pressure to have everything all figured out. Those are actually some of the most beautiful classes I think I've taught mm. when I've kind of gone in with like a little bit of a, a sense, but not, not putting too much pressure on myself. Yeah. And let's speak to the trauma-informed language. And I really appreciate how you just described your way of speaking to it. Cause I didn't have the words for that. I think you said like spiritually connected. I have to say, Zabi, you have your language cues and the ones you share in your book are the best I've ever seen. Um, oh, and so much to me. No, they really are. And I struggle when training teachers because <laughs> I try to give them examples and I find that new teachers, they just, they're so nervous and they often say, I invite you to, <laughs> I invite you to, <laughs> and just saying I invite, right, isn't necessarily invitational. <laughs> so maybe you can just open that up a little bit and speak to what truly connected, spiritually connected and aware of what's in the space, how that influences your language and the way that you're yeah, inviting people to move on their own accord. I love this question. I found myself sort of just closing my eyes and you know, resting my palm on my heart and belly as you were asking the question, because this is so important. And it reminds me of what you were saying earlier about how, you know, we often, many people will come to a trauma-informed yoga training or a certification thinking that they will leave with the formula of, 
if I just say all the things in this way, or if I follow this very prescriptive checklist, then I will be trauma informed. But I think when we remember that being trauma informed is a lifelong process as a practitioner of honoring people's humanity and putting them at the center of their own experience, that it's not so rigid, you know, like it doesn't have to be, I invite you to do that. It's not like sitting in a chair and no eye contact and no, you know, like to me, that's not a soulful spiritual (laughs) healing experience. That's feeling like I need to kind of rigidly move through these things that I was taught. And it's probably why I, I was on another podcast recently with my dear friend Sahar and I was sharing how I've never been somebody that's kind of colored in the lines and like done things exactly how they're supposed to be done. I I think that's probably why I no longer work, you know, at specifically as an employee at an institution or within systems that I feel like are oftentimes not set up for us to thrive because I just feel so much more expansive than that. And I want to be able to do things outside the lines. And, and so, yeah, you know, we can fall back on some of those cues that we might learn around inviting or exploring. I I kind of like to think of those as having them available in the toolkit and then thinking about expanding upon that, like, how does it make you feel when you're in community and you're teaching and, and you can feel the palpable feeling of resilience and healing in the room? You know, how can you feel into that energy and then integrate that into the way that you teach? I'm just reading some of the, the cues, which are on page 42 and 43 of my book. Some of the things that I say are, you know, the choices that you make with your body are always celebrated in this space. There are many ways to communicate your comfort level with assists. I honor your choices and know that you can change your mind at any time. Allow being where you are to be enough. It is enough. I invite you to explore finding a shape in your body that feels safe and supportive and accessible to you. I invite you to send yourself gratitude just for arriving to your mat today. So often that's the hardest part. And so we can use that word invite, but we can expand upon it to be, you know, like we're cussing in my classes, we're crying. There's like India Ari playing, we're dancing, you know, like it's definitely not that, that rigid clinical structure. Um, and I think we all should be invited to find our own selves and our own expression in the way that we teach, because again, everybody's going to need something a little bit different, but I just hope that folks don't feel like they have to be pigeonholed within these specific frameworks that they can also bring their full selves to the work. I think that page, those pages alone are worth getting the book for. (laughs) In case we haven't mentioned it, and of course I'll link it, it's Trauma-Informed Yoga for Survivors of Sexual Assault, Practices for Healing and Teaching with Compassion. And even as I read those beautiful cues, I could. I could imagine your voice (laughs) and it was nice to hear you read them just 
and when I say that, I guess what I mean is I can really feel the, your energy and your spirit in the words. Oh, that means so much to me. I really hope that folks feel held by this book that you can draw inspiration from the resources that no matter where you might be on your healing journey as a survivor, that you can flip open to the later chapters in the book and work through the practices. Or if you're an aspiring trauma-informed yoga teacher or a therapist who wants to do this work, that there's so many resources that you can pull from. And even not, you know, I always like to say too, I think sometimes people look at the book and think, oh, I'm not a survivor of sexual assault or, oh, maybe I don't work with that population. But First of all, there we're always working with survivors and in every space that we are, whether we know it or not. But also I think even if you're working with other populations of trauma, there's a lot that you can pull from that can be broadly accessible and integrated into your work. Even if you want to learn some new ways of speaking to yourself, <laughs> I think this book is great for that. It's like, I want to hear those words spoken to myself. I've just poured my heart and soul into these pages, into these cues in particular, which have continued to, you know, I'm continuing to expand upon them. And, and yeah, I think sometimes people will look at the book and think, oh, well, I'm not a survivor or I don't work with sexual assault survivors. And, and first of all, you know, we're all working with survivors, whether we know it or not, you know, in all the spaces that we're in. Yes. Um, but I also feel like if you have a specialization in working with veterans or working with cancer survivors or working with multiple populations of trauma, that people can definitely come to this book and pull nuggets and wisdom and inspiration to integrate when working with those populations. And and if you're a survivor and you want to flip to the back of the book and really feel some support and containment with the trauma-informed practices that are there or the accompanying card deck, you know, we really try to create something for everyone. And I remember when my editor was, she wrote me and she's like, you know, many people seek out to write a book for multiple populations and they struggle because it's hard to write to many different audiences. And she's like, you managed to do that with this book because I think, you know, mental health professionals can pick it up and feel like, wow, I, I feel empowered or I feel like I now have the tools to integrate some of these mini practices into session or, you know, use the affirmation cards as a way to set us on culpa or to set intention for the practice or just, you know, starting small. So I'm just grateful to anytime I see anyone with it. It's, I know, as you know, Laura, being an author, we spend so much time writing these books and pouring out our heart into these pages. And so when we see people who have it, it, it just never gets old. Oh no, I can't wait to see people holding my book in their hands. <laughs> I have a, a self-published um, planner, which is kind of like a, a coaching planner. I'll have to send you one. So I get the same feeling with that. You incorporate, in addition to the yoga poses, there's self-touch, there are affirmations. I think there's music. I know you mentioned music uh, on this call. Some of those offerings, and I'm not sure if you're you're also teaching any breath work, could be considered 
potentially triggering. And I thought it'd be interesting to ask you to, to speak to that and how, you know, how you offer those and in a way that feels safe and how I know you, you talk about creating a culture of consent in the yoga room. So maybe you can speak to some of those. I was thinking specifically, you know, I know breathwork could be triggering music, even affirmations, if we don't believe them can sometimes kind of backfire. Oh, definitely. I'm just actually flipping open to, I just wanted to point folks to this section of the book because I think that it's really helpful when we're thinking about how we might support folks who could be potentially triggered in class. And this is on, okay, so on page 81, There's a section in, there's a whole section of the book on, you know, how to teach from a trauma-informed lens. And this particular section is on supporting students who are triggered. And, you know, what I'll first say is that there's only so much that we can do. You know, there are things that I definitely stay away from doing. I'm not going to be cueing any postures that are exposing of the pelvic area or anything that could be potentially triggering for a survivor of sexual assault. I also, you know, I follow the lead of those who are in class. You know, I really want it to be a collaborative experience of how does the lighting feel in here today, folks? How's this landing? Do you want to be in a circle or do you want to create a little more space pointing out where the exit door is and reminding them that they can leave at any time that when we're in Shavasana, that there are multiple ways to explore shapes of rest. There's no right or wrong way that rest might be in a seated meditation with your eyes open. Rest might be laying on your side. It might be legs up the wall pose if that feels restorative. It might be starting out one way and then making a shift or a change. Maybe it's knowing that you can exit the room at any time. You know, there's, you think about in many traditional yoga classes or studios that we go to, it's very prescriptive. You might walk into the class and the teacher says, here's a a strap and a block or everybody needs a strap and two blocks. Don't leave the room at any time. Only drink water at these designated moments. You know, like it's just so often survivors will come to yoga to find healing and then end up feeling harm or or re-triggered or re-traumatized. And so, so much of what I do is I do as much as I can to eliminate some of those of the barriers or, or the triggers, whether that's hiding straps that might be in the room or being intentional with the, the music that I do choose. Oftentimes it's very instrumental with the exception of India Ari's I am light and beautiful chorus, you know, things that I, um, you know, I just find, I personally find those artists to be very healing. And I'll also tell people what's on the playlist and it's never been a problem in the past, but I just think, you know, if we overthink it and if we become so prescriptive, it starts making us feel constrained. 
And when we're suppressing our full selves, it's it's not allowing us to show up in spaces authentically and, and with our own healing. So I think about that a lot too, because I think sometimes people will go to a trauma sensitive teacher training and then they start losing some of themselves they start mm. some of their voice because yeah they think it needs to be this way in order to be safe and i just want to remind people that you can this is not about stripping away who you are as a teacher. This is instead just adding a few things to your toolkit. And, you know, it might even be, and I think sometimes people get really overwhelmed after they leave the training because they don't know where to start. And I say, why don't you just maybe just explore today with integrating some of the cues and doing a trauma-informed Shavasana? Maybe just start there and see how, how things shift within your own physiology and see how students respond. Yeah. And it's so amazing how oftentimes, you know, we'll have teachers who teach at Yoga Works or Core Power and then go into these community classes they're teaching and they're like, students were coming up to me in tears afterwards saying they've, they've never had help spaces held for them in that way. And they felt so much freedom and expression. And, you know, there are tiny ways that we can start. And I would just really encourage folks to get the book because on pages 82 and 83, there's just so much information about how you can really tend to folks who might be triggered during class, whether that's you know, beginning the practice by having a discussion with students about how they can identify something that feels like an anchor or resource when maybe a painful memory or experience might start to flood their nervous system. There's just so many tools in the book. And so I hope folks can go there to find more resources. Yes, I will definitely send them there. And, and I think you're so right. What you're speaking to is really the therapeutic relationship and the space holding, this kind of thing that can't really teach. There's a healing relationship that happens in relationship <laughs> when there's acceptance and when there's really full acceptance and non-judgment. And when we start as teachers really questioning our every move and cutting our energy off, it doesn't allow for that healing relationship to happen. So um, I think that that deserved like just an extra kind of highlight there, what you were speaking to. Mm, yeah, I love that, Laura. I think it's something that we should be talking about more and something that definitely should be brought to the forefront because I do see too many people who feel like, oh, I need to teach in this specific way, or I need to do it like this. And, and I would just never want folks to feel like they're losing themselves when they are teaching in these healing spaces, because your essence and your being and your healing journey and your voice, I mean, that that's so critical. It's so critical to find the integration of all of it. Thank you. That's so important. For yoga teachers, I, I think I've noticed that a lot of your you're speaking a lot to yoga teachers lately in, in your social media. And I would love for some of this audience, definitely yoga teachers, 
And one of the things that we talk about and worry about with yoga teachers, especially trauma-informed yoga teachers who are really working with survivors is how they're doing, right? Their fatigue, their burnout, when they think they're not making a difference, how they're taking care of themselves, their own regulation, so that that, you know, that they're not getting that secondary and tertiary trauma. So I wonder as we come toward our close, what you might want to say to those yoga teachers out there and or what practices you incorporate to keep your nervous system regulated, you know, through all this work? Mm, Oh, I love this question. Um, Well, I actually, as you were saying that, I pulled up a post that I wanted to read and it says, Dear Trauma-Informed Yoga Teachers, I see you thoughtfully preparing for your classes, holding space for others while you tend to your own wounds, working on your trauma-informed cues, creating accessibility for all bodies and identities, providing various options for resting in Shavasana, creating a culture of consent, committing to ongoing trauma education and CEs, inviting students to come just as they are and tending to your own nervous system with care and compassion. So I want to just invite you to take a deep, full inhale in and then exhale out your pace and your way. And, you know, as I I think about this question a lot, because I feel like many people come to this work with their own experiences of trauma, and it requires us to be extra gentle with ourselves that we can do all of the training and read all of the books and learn all of the things, but that So often our own wounds and our own lived experiences intertwined in the spaces that we're holding. And I think that that is such a great gift. And at the same time, if we're not engaging in regular practices to support our own mental health, whether that is, you know, having your own rituals and resources of support that take the form of colleague support and supervision from a mentor, really honing in on your own embodied boundaries and your personal nervous system practices, making sure that you have a manageable workload or caseload, or, you know, that you're working with a number of clients that feels accessible for you or that you're delegating as you can that you're taking time off and remembering what connects you to your joy and that you're really leaning into things like self and community care. Because if you're only doing the trauma work and you have no space or margins to allow for anything else, that's going to be a really quick road to burnout. And that's going to affect the way that you're able to show up to these spaces. So I'm just always inviting folks to do less, to be gentle with themselves, to really listen to what their bodies are communicating to them and respond. Because, you know, if we're teaching these tools, but we're not practicing ourselves, 
then that energy definitely shows up into the spaces that we're holding. And I think one of my biggest practices is, is I'm someone who's very connected to my community to my support system and to what brings me joy. Like joy is such an essential practice that I embody. Like when I'm in it, I am, I am truly in it. And it's something that trickles out into every aspect of what I do. And it doesn't make me bypass any of the hard things that I'm experiencing or that are going on in the world, but it's knowing that we can hold multiple things at the same time. I think that's a beautiful final message for our teachers and everyone listening, right? (laughs) To be able to hold that. And I really appreciate the practice that you led us through. I took that breath (laughs) and it really settled my nervous system. So thank you for that. I hope folks joined in with that if if you were in a safe place to do so. And so I really appreciate this conversation. There's a lot more that I would love to talk to you about. So maybe I can have you on another time for a part two. (laughs) Um, But as, as we head out and I want to respect your time, I just love for you to share, you know, what you're up to now, what's next on the horizon for you and your work, where should we look out for you and, you know, how can folks find you if they want to work with you? Mm, Well, thank you so much for this question. There's so many exciting things that are happening actually right now. So trauma-informed yoga for survivors of sexual assault practices for healing and teaching with compassion is the book. And it was released in January, as well as the accompanying trauma-informed yoga affirmation card deck. So those are available wherever books are sold. I'm also publishing an additional resource with Norton who published these two resources and it's a trauma-informed yoga flip chart, which I'm really excited about because It really gives yoga teachers, healing professionals, an accessible way to explain a lot of these concepts that we talked about today. So it's a flip chart format, meaning the front page is, you know, a picture or a diagram explaining the concept and the back side is talking notes for the practitioner. And it also comes with a dry erase board marker. So you can kind of easily write out or highlight some of the key concepts. If you're talking about the neurobiology of trauma, if you're going through some trauma-informed yoga cues, it's really meant to be a teaching tool. And my children's book, Your Joy is Beautiful, The Magic of Knowing You're Enough Just As You Are, is on its way. It is being published by PESI. And many of you might know them if there are mental health professionals in this space. They they actually publish a lot of amazing mental health workbooks and healing resources, and they're just building out their children's books line. And so that's coming out also in 2023. And I'm writing another book that is called Protect Your Energy Embodied Practices Ooh. for Living Peace. And I'm really excited about that one. It's it's basically that last question that Laura asked me, but a whole book about that. 
Yeah, I could feel that from your post. I could feel that's where you were going with your work. And we just can't stop, right? When I was writing my book, I'm like, never again. I'm also, I'm like already writing a book when the other one isn't even out yet. <laughs> I know. It's because I think you start to get in that mindset and then, you know, you the creativity starts flowing and there's so much to share and one thing sort of opens up to the next. And, and yes, I think for those who follow me on social media, you might, see kind of that path. I also think when healing happens, it also unlocks parts of you that have been needing some love and attention. And so I've been really nurturing those parts and it's put me in this place of, of creativity. And there's a lot of different book events that you can find both on the website and on social media. And I'm I have my trauma-informed yoga online certification training that's open to all. That's always available and it's self-paced. For those who want an in-person option, we'll be doing an in-person three-day trauma-informed yoga certification training in February of 2023. So just feel free to connect with me on any of these things and I'm happy to share more. And I'm so grateful, Laura. Thank you for having me today. Thank you, Zahavia. Thank you so much. I hope you go off and have a beautiful day. And we will definitely be in touch. I I can feel that strongly. I I really feel that too and believe that. And thank you, Laura, for the incredible work that you do in the world. And it's just been such a beautiful conversation with you today. Thanks again. As we buzz around the busy world, it becomes clear there are billions of paths. As we buzz around the busy world, we will appear in other people's photographs. As we speed through the centuries, we will collide and the light will bend. We will be accidentally immortalized in someone else's land.